episode of Absolute AppSec. I'm Ken Johnson at CK Tricky on Twitter, joined by my co-host Seth Law at Seth Law on Twitter. Seth, say hi. Hey, everybody. Uh, welcome once again. We're back. Uh, this is two weeks in a row. I think it's even less than a week, less than a week and apart. So I guess we're, you know, kind of back on our schedule. Um, we're very glad to have Ernest Mueller uh, joining us today. Uh, and we have other guests lined up. Uh, obviously, all the discussion last week with Kevin Cody on Cores was excellent. Go check out that podcast if you didn't see it. Ken and I, however, next week, if we do a podcast, it's going to be remote uh, from Melbourne, of all places. They actually reached out, by the way, Seth, and said that, um, uh, I think it was Daniel Ting, he reached out and said that we will, that um, we can use a room there to podcast from. Cool. So, yeah. yeah, so maybe we'll do it, you know, something at least on Friday during the conference for half hour or hour and talk about what we're doing down there and the AppSec Day conference. It's it's a pretty impressive one. Uh, we always talk about the fact that the developer community comes out to that security conference, right? Most of the time we go to these application security conferences like the OWASP AppSec conferences or whatever else, It's it feels very security heavy, like a lot of product security people and penetration testers like web, web app, whatever, and a few developers. But they, I, I can't remember what the percentage Julian said last year, uh, Ken was, but it was something like 70% of their attendees were developers um, and not security people. So it felt very much more like those developer, developer conferences we go to, like the PyCons and you know CodeMash or whatever else. So it was kind of a cool, it's a cool one. If you can make it to Australia in October, uh, you know it's not necessarily the easiest one to get to. But anybody that's down there in Australia, hello. Uh, we'll be down, hit us up, and we'll go grab a drink or dinner or something because we're excited to be By there. my calculations and my understanding of time zones, it's like the year 2022 there. <laughs> something like that. No, I, okay. So this was the other thing I figured out because I like, no, never mind. I'm not going to say that because, yeah, it gives out too much personal information. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> it, has to, it has to do with my with, with my birthday and flying and Anyway, it doesn't matter. So <laughs> anyway, so we have Ernest on the show today. <laughs> Howdy. Some of, the folks, uh, some of the folks in our startup are in Melbourne, so I, I will try to send them out. Heck oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, the conference isn't too too expensive, but it's a great little I – mean, Julian does a great job. I think they're expecting probably 800-plus this year. They had oh. over 600 last year. Yeah, it's a, it's a good conference, so – the for, I think it's going to be Friday of next week, but yeah. then it would be. Oh my god, you got! I'm gonna I'm gonna have a stroke trying to figure out what time. Like, so I think it would be a Thursday U.S. and then Friday. Yeah. Okay, all right. <laughs> Again, <laughs> don't understand time zones at all. Just take our time and add like eighteen hours or something to it. Crazy like that. So yeah, yeah it's going exactly. to the future. Don't worry about it. Right. But then you go back into the past, coming back mm -hmm. to the States. Yeah. Yeah. I think my Anyways. flight leaves, leaves <laughs> Melbourne and then I get back home like an hour after I left, but I traveled for 24 hours or something like that. So yeah. It's fun. insane. So, it is insane. But um, I, yeah, I mean, we're giving our course. I'm actually going to do a short hour on the secure code review framework as well during the conference. See if I see how much I can slam into an hour. Um, yeah, cause that's always, that's always a challenge. So anyway, so that's, that, that's what we've got going on. Um, 
other than that, like I do have Cactus Con on the calendar. That's the beginning of December. Um, I don't know if I don't know if anybody else is at, like I, I think Ken's about done traveling for the year. He's, he's been on the road a lot. Um, so so find us online. We'll, we'll definitely be there. So, anyway, so that's all everything that I had. Um, yeah, let, let's talk about Ernest. Howdy. Oh, howdy. Um, Ernest, uh, Ken, did you have in, uh, like an intro script that you pulled up for Ernest? <laughs> yeah, no. So I've, well, so first of all, Ernest has spoken a bunch. I mean, you know, what I, the last time I saw you speak was at um, last con. I think I was like in the first row, like watching you. Uh, you're a really good speaker was the, the first takeaway. Well, the like second takeaway is that you've been, um, I mean, you've basically been working with not just web apps, but just like, cause you know, we talk obviously absolute AppSec, um, but just since like systems engineering in general, um, a lot of the nut, nut, nuts and bolts of operations you've worked in. Um, you used to work for Alien Vault. Uh, and I just, yeah, like I really, I really uh, enjoyed, I've always enjoyed your talks. Uh, like I said, you're a really good speaker and I think you have a lot to offer, especially when we talk about like, uh, I don't know what people want to call it, DevOpsSec, DevSecOps, whatever it is that you want to call it, but like the real idea of like DevOps uh, and how security plays into DevOps. And then also like you have a fair bit, a fair bit of experience with Agile and like Lean and that whole, that whole sort of process. And uh, yeah, I just think it's, it, I, there's a lot for you to, to offer folks on this podcast. So we wanted to have you on and I'm glad you joined. Thanks for joining us today. Great. Absolutely. Uh, thank you very much for inviting me. Yeah. So um, Seth, before we get into it, I, I kind of, I want to hear a little bit about like Ernest's background, because if you look at your background, it spans quite a, like quite a bit, right? Like you've, I'm old. like I, <laughs> no, I didn't mean it like that, but you've definitely done like, uh, so you've been a pro, uh, sorry, was that product manager at, uh, I don't know how to say this, Idea or Software? Yes, Idea. And you were at, presumably this is where maybe you met James and Karthik was at National Instruments as a web systems architect? That's right. Sweet. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I'll give you the the quick view. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm uh, I'm perhaps different from some of the folks you have on in that, you know, I, I've, I've never really been a full-time security person, but just because of my background, security has always been about, you know, 20% of my day, whatever, whatever role it is I've been in. Right. So, uh, I, uh, originally graduated in electrical engineering from, uh, Rice university back, uh, back in the nineties. Um, and my first, uh, job was with, uh, FedEx corporate IT, um, mm-hmm. where I did, you know, development systems administration, um, me and another guy wrote the uh, wrote the first international version of the uh, the internet ship. The like, go ship your packages on the on the FedEx website, right? Uh, oh, nice! I just you know, back in the day, C CGI scripts for the win. Ooh, nice, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, and even during that point, like as somebody who was also doing kind of systems administration work back then. Security was your job, right? We we had some 
data protection department far away, right? But but uh, you know, at that time, it's like you know, just like Cliff Stahl, right? Uh, from uh, from the famous the cuckoo's egg. It's like you know, you're the system administrator. You're the person that sees what's going on. So uh, so you know, I got good with kind of the security tooling of the day, the the cops, the crack, the Satan, the, you know, uh, that uh, generation of, uh, of tooling. And it was just part of, you know, part of what you did as a responsible system administrator. And then, uh, of course, as web applications uh, uh, became uh, more and more prominent, you, you know, you obviously had to make sure you were hardening your, your applications. Uh, security was obviously very infrastructure focused up uh, until that point. But uh, the second that you got web apps, kind of the application security started to become uh, the, the more important part of that uh, equation. Um, left there during the- That was a weird transition. That was a weird. That was a weird transition, like to like AppSec being like a thing because it was so heavily network security, and it just like that Absolutely. whole transition to like, oh, th there's more than just like our firewall to be concerned about now. Like that was yeah. a whole. People don't realize, but that was a big deal. It, absolutely, you know. Uh, uh, I, in fact, I mean, the reason that I kind of shifted my my career to be web focused, right? You know, I, I was sitting there at at FedEx. I loaded up, you know, the Nixa HTTP daemon version 0.9, whatever it was, right? And some other guy, like FedEx had a big uh, uh, TCP IP network, right? But it was all being used for weird stuff, right? But some other, uh, you know, some other guy somewhere else brought one up and using Mosaic, I could, you know, go hit his side <laughs> and he could hit mine. And I was like, like, it was one of those oh shit moments that you have in your career and you're like, Oh, okay. I see. I see how this is going to be right. Uh, uh, you know, it's so obviously more powerful than uh, uh, the kind of computing paradigms that came behind it, but uh, definitely came with its uh, whole new new set of problems. But back then, you know, if you were doing it, you were doing all of it. You were writing the CGI scripts and running the web server. You know, as I was webmaster, right? Like yeah. uh, <laughs> back, back when one person could do you know sling the html and run the servers and you know the, those uh youthful days we were jumping in swimming holes or you know whatever um but from there worked for a uh kind of print and internet publishing startup in memphis during the first uh, dot-com boom uh which of course went out of business at the end of the first dot-com uh, boom in uh, yeah. 2000 <laughs> sorry in the we've all worked at places like that where they just yes. they don't exist anymore living social <clears throat> yep. uh, so found myself in the northeast for a little while and then uh uh, got, I'm from Texas originally uh, and uh, got an opportunity with National Instruments to uh, come back, uh, come back down here and run the web systems team uh, out there. And that was seven, 16 years ago, uh, something like that. Um, and yeah, that's when I met uh, uh, James uh, Wicket and Josh Sokol and Karthik Gaekwad and Echo Karyanev and all those folks, uh, uh, the all the systems ones were on uh, my team, and then uh, Karthik and the developers were kind of our our partners in the uh, application development group. Um, and at National Instruments at the time, there was no like, and this is weird because it was a big company. 
there was no full-time security staff of any sort. Right. Like the rumor, the rumor was they had had one, but found him sleeping in his cube too much and got rid of him or something. You know, know, random scuttle, butt, right. That I, I can't vouch for, but there was just, there was just nobody. So, um, as the systems team, it, it kind of naturally devolved to us. And we were always looking to expand um, expand what we were doing. So we added on practice areas in, in APM. Uh, we added on a practice area in security. And we're like, okay, well, we're, we'll start uh, uh, helping with this. And, and two of my guys, James and Josh, uh, they were both uh, uh, real early career at that point. They were like, security, we're interested in that. What do we do? And I was like, well, I, I had a letter published in 2600 magazine back in the day. Let's, uh, you know, let's get y'all into security, figure out what's going on. And we plugged into, um, OWASP. Uh, there was a somewhat defunct, uh, Austin OWASP chapter, uh, at that point. And so we started, um, holding meetings. There were some other folks, uh, with, uh, 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 Whole Foods, uh, at the time that were interested. So we started, uh, having meetings and, uh, uh, flipping back and forth between the venues until we figured out that flipping back and forth caused nobody to show up. And so we, uh, started having them at national instruments and to, to this day now, you know, more than, more than a decade later, they're, uh, uh still having, you know, big old Austin OWASP meetings over at national instruments and, uh, going strong. Right. Uh, so, uh, so that was awesome. So we got plugged into it from that perspective, uh, uh, learned a lot more, um, that was when we also came into contact with DevOps uh, super early. And, and I feel like this is instructive because with the, the discussion about DevSecOps and all that right now. So the way that I is, yeah, I had done development in the past, but I was primarily uh, managing an operations team, right? And we were, I had a lot, I, just out of sheer luck and good hiring, I guess, like, had a bunch of sharp people, right? It was a, it was a, a company that hires all engineers, like, you know, the, the, the average employee of uh, national instruments is a, you know, an electrical engineer, mechanical engineer, whatever, very, very uh, uh, cerebral pr- place. Right. So we really were trying to push the envelope on just how well we were doing things. You know, it's like, Hey, operations, you know, it's important. We're putting millions of dollars through our web store. We're doing all this stuff. Like, you know, how do we make this better and better? And after a while, it, like, it became clear that we were banging our heads against a wall somehow, right? Like, you know, we were, we're using all the best tools we can get. We were really putting a lot of thought into it. We were, we were doing the right things, but the systems team was still always the bottleneck, right? Like, you know, I got it to where we were a valued partner. There'd be like the web business meeting and the app developer managers would come and I would come and like, everybody's like, Oh, we, we love them and they're great, but like, they're still the bottleneck and what's going on. We still can't get our new projects out fast enough. We still can't whatever. And we were going to the velocity conferences, which were kind of the first kind of O'Reilly sysadmin oriented conferences. They're kind of, they're still going on today. They're kind of half sysadmin, half uh, web performance. Um, but before that, you just had to go to other conferences and bottom feed to get any sort of operations 
stuff. Yeah. I guess why, I'll go to, the one, go to the one, you know, the one talk that's at all about operational topics. So O'Reilly uh, really uh, stepped in there. They, I think Tim O'Reilly and folks like Jesse Robbins had uh, clear visions around the importance of operations early on. So, so we started doing that and, and when, when kind of DevOps uh, hit, we, because we were just kind of already in those things and talking with those people and seeing the, the, you know, Facebook 10 deploys a day and the dev and ops love presentation, like some of those real seminal things. Um, we were already kind of really primed for it and saying, you know, like we're just, we're doing, we're putting so much effort into this and doing it so well and still having it not bear fruit. The, like you just, you clearly got the impression that you must be swimming against the current somehow. Like it's like there, there's something fundamentally wrong that's making us not be successful besides, you know, cause we're, we're smart, motivated, you know, planning, have good tools. Like we've got support. Like it's not, you, you can't point at anything and blame it anymore. It's just not happening. Um, and then, you know, when DevOps hit and we were, you know, talking with all those folks and, and realizing, you know, yeah, maybe that, maybe that crazy agile stuff that developers are doing could be brought to bear on this and, and maybe, you know, uh, not having 10 different teams broken down by infrastructure specialty. Like maybe that's terrible. Maybe, maybe that's causing some of the problem. Right. Uh, <laughs> and so yeah. the, they started up a, they started up a SAS uh, organization at, at National Instruments and they tapped um, some of us to come over and uh, help lead it because we were in IT, right? We we're running the corporate website and web store and all that. Uh, but in the product division, they were like, we need to start doing this. And so we went over there and we all looked at each other and we're like, okay, like, let's, let's, let's try this. We're going to, we're going to do it all in the cloud. We're going to have an integrated developer and ops team. We're going to like, we're going to really try this, this new approach. And I mean, in the end it worked out beautifully. I mean, uh, the, the average time to deliver a new product uh, in the normal national Instruments pipeline is three years. Uh, and for us, it was one year. Um, how often were you doing de like what was before before the the progress was made you know how often were deploys done you know with with like on average i mean you had mentioned facebook at that time was doing like 10 deploys a day which i was actually a pretty big deal back back in this time frame but yeah yeah um, yeah so so in the that was always the, that was an interesting point of contention right in the uh in the web systems organization there they they kind of wallowed back and forth like we were doing these monthly deployments and as the team grew like they were just uh they were they were horrible right so we would start on a friday night the entire systems team and then like we learned that stuff would go wrong and you had to have the developers around so on chat you would get the systems team and dozens of developers you would start at like 8 p.m. Friday night and you would go until you were done. And that was the wee hours, you know, sometimes the not so wee hours on Saturday. Uh, you'd, you know, be deploying over time 20, 30, 40 applications uh, all at once. Oh, right. Geez. And it just 
it started getting worse and worse. And this is before this is before kind of the the CICD uh, book had come out. And the, yeah, the, you know, I was just the, thinking, how much of it works on my machine? Did you guys have to deal with it? But here's the funny thing: we we made these like just larval steps towards it. Like uh, like uh, my friend Pekka, we had him write this thing we called auto deploys because yeah, people would just put in a ticket. They would say, <laughs> deploy my Java application. Here's some poorly thought out things to type, right? Yeah. <laughs> Nightmare. So we wrote this little Perl thing and we were like, tell you what, here's your config file, right? Tell us where in Perforce, because this is before Git, right? I'm old, right? right. Uh, you know, Tell us where, you know, where your jar is and what other files need to be moved and whatever. And don't, don't tell us, put it in that, run it on test, and then we'll run it on production. In like, and of course, right before we implemented that, there was no, um, there was no end of whining, right? For the developers like, what? Uh -uh. Blah, 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 right? But then we did one release with it and we never heard a peep out of anybody else again because it just became clear how much better it made their lives. Oh, yeah. nice. Because we were making their happy asses stay up all night on Friday <laughs> night as well, right? And so they're like, oh, if if I do this and my deployment works in a production-like environment and then they run it like it's better for everybody, right? Um, so so we had done some stuff like that, but we 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 weren't thinking of things in a CI sort of perspective just because we didn't have that lens to put to it. But I, I still remember when the, the app director came over and he was like, oh, boy, these monthly releases are terrible. And we're like, yeah. And he was like, well, maybe we should do what we do with the ERP systems and move to quarterly releases, right? Uh, and, down. you know, yeah, yeah. And my, my heart just turned over. And at the time, I couldn't even, you know, you didn't have the language, small batch size, whatever. You didn't have the language yeah. to say why that was wrong. But like, I was just like, I was like that, like, you know, <laughs> like I, I seriously am considering choking you out and throwing you in a dumpster somewhere. Like, like there's something so wrong about that uh, because it's just, it, it'll be worse. It'll be not, and not linearly worse. Right. Right. Uh, exactly. And so that's, you know, it was all pre DevOps, but this is what got our minds going. Right. I see a lot of that having gone on in, uh, in InfoSec, right. Uh, uh, there were at a, at an OWASP meeting and boy, this is, I don't even know how long ago this is now. Seven years. Uh, uh, Dre, uh, Andre Gironda came and he did a oh, talk yeah, yeah. coming and integrating with, with teams. Like I come in as a pen tester and like, He's like, I discovered people don't really like being audited or tested, but they like having a security buddy. So I would come in and be their security buddy, right? And you know, and I was like, ooh, that that sounds like that sounds like security is starting to grasp out towards those same uh, uh, same sort of concepts that we had just started, you know, or three years into in, in DevOps or whatever. Uh, so I, I've been seeing that same sort of uh, uh, kind of baseline uh, setting going on. Um, and so, so just to quickly skip to the end on my, on uh, the, there's still the introduction. Like, no, 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 uh, yeah, but, no, no, no. So actually I was going to mention like, 
if you've never met Andre, like Geronda uh, is how I'd say it, that there. So what I like about Andre is that, first of all, like that's probably he's probably one of the, the, the people that I mean, I don't know what else he does besides security, honestly, because I, I can't imagine there's anything else. He's like really yep. super read up and, and is constantly keeping up with things for like at least over a decade now that, that, that I've known of Andre and <clears throat> also really nice person. However, very honest. And that's not always well received from, from folks. But if you know, Andre, it's not like he's trying to be malicious or anything like that. It's just that he's just a very blunt person and very like honest and, you know, definitely like, um, is not going to shy away from, you know, the, the hard truths. So anyways, yeah. I, 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 Seth, I don't know if you met him, but I love the guy. Yeah. Yeah. No, he's great. Yeah, he's very honest. Uh, like when he came and gave that talk, I, I, I went up to him. I was like, Hey, like, you know, really, really like what you're, uh, uh, what you're doing there. And so then, you know, again, I, I float in and out of the, uh, security sphere. So we did that at national instruments. And then, uh, uh, I guess we shipped about three different products and then, all of us were like, time for our next challenge. So we all kind of scattered to the to the winds. Uh, folks like James decided to <laughs> go into you know more of a security focused thing full time, uh, and then uh, I went. Uh, I, I decided to uh, try my hand at um, product management. Well, actually, first I went to Bizarre Voice. Um, they they had moved to Agile, and they had like a six week release cycle and they tried to just start releasing at the end of each sprint and it all came tumbling down and went terribly and they were like oh like i i guess there's more stuff we actually have to do to <laughs> to to be able to do that um so i was specifically hired in uh initially as release manager basically get us down to you know two week releases so you know, we kind of went through the CI/CD playbook, automated testing. You know, getting people comfortable with signing off and with and with saying something's not ready to go. We got the the um, releases down to two weeks, and then we got them down to one week. Uh, we we uh, never got to kind of full uh, continuous uh, delivery. We do continuous integration to kind of our test environments, but. Um, it was a very mature system with a lot of integration. So keeping to that weekly cadence for other people to uptake, go into production was, was useful for us. There were, there were a bunch of other systems that let you make production changes to like customer, customer integrations and stuff on a, on a, uh, as you need basis. So, so we got to a week and, and then we we're real happy. And so then I took over the ops team there. Um, and then one of the great things about uh, Bizarre Voice, and it was super refreshing because prior to that, I'd worked for pretty large organizations. I mean, obviously, FedEx is uh, crazy large and uh, uh, National Instruments is pretty large. But there, you know, if everybody looked at each other and decided the right thing to do is X, they would just be like, hey, everybody, next Monday, we're going to be doing X. Like there wasn't there wasn't all, <laughs> like. It, a lot of play, a lot of places like find it hard to believe that it really is as simple as that. It really is as simple as that. Uh, so, uh, so I took over the ops team and we did that for a while. And then I was like, you know, I think the right thing to do is 
to not have an ops team anymore. We should embed wow. we should embed the engineers in the you know in the individual teams and stuff like that. And so you know we were like we declare the death of the ops team. Like two of them are going to that team, and then one to that team, and whatever. And and uh, uh, you know they'll still they'll still kind of report back, but they'll be kind of permanently embedded. Um, is this like is this a is this an evolution based off of that like that uh, concept of a, a buddy basically? I mean, I know it was a security context, but well, yes, I don't and, know if and that helps. Of uh, the the a lot of the goals of agile and lean, right? You want to have a product team that has everything they need to go from you know in agile they always say from concept to or uh, lean they always say from concept to cash, right? It's like you've got the idea. Do you have do you have the resources you need to create that and ship it and whatever without having to go ask some other team? Because whenever you ask some other team, you get that standard kind of map theory, geometric blocking sort of thing going on. Whereas if one team can, if they can, you know, do the requirements and develop it and test it and build the infrastructure and ship it to production, all integral to themselves then they can achieve really, really high rates of speed because there's no artificial blocking on other teams. Um, to jump back in time, I'll tell you a little anecdote from uh, National Instruments that was very was very affecting to me when I was first starting to think about the, these ideas. So pre-cloud, again, because I'm super old, right? Uh, uh, virtualization, VMware came around, right? Uh. So at that time, we had an IT infrastructure division where we were web systems. There was a Unix team, a network team, a storage team, a data center team, a Windows team, a collaboration. Like there were like 12 damn teams, right? Uh, DA yeah. team. So for us to get a new server for, for web systems, it took six weeks, right? Oh, wow. It would be like, here, this is what we need. The Unix admins would vet the specs, they'd put in an order with Dell. You know, Dell would ship it to us. One team would, you know, would rack it uh, and jack it. Another team would load the OS on it. Six weeks, right? So VMware comes in and they're like, hey, we got this cool thing. Look, click and 15 minutes later, you've got a new server, right? And everybody's like, "That's, that's badass. Management's like, that sounds great. So you know, we buy a big, you know, VM team, VM farm, we get a new VM team because why not? Right. Uh, <laughs> and, and then guess how long it took me to get a new server? Six weeks. So four weeks. <laughs> the, two weeks uh, the two weeks of Dell fulfillment were removed. Oh, right? yeah. But like it, it became very like, that's one of those, again, one of those oh shit moments, right? You're like, okay, like this is something that it it takes 15 minutes but my organization's process is turning that into 4 weeks and this is before i i had learned anything about lean and stuff like that so like if you learn right. about lean like you start understanding why that is and and uh and you can kind of put terminology around it but like at the time i just just kind of had that realization i was like that's i was like we're doing like like we are generating the friction, right? Like yep. it's, it's not some, it's not some external factor causing it to be this slow. We're making it this slow. 
like we're turning 15 minutes into four weeks, that's inherently wrong, right? And if you can make that realization, right, like it's not too long before business decision makers start to make that same realization, right? They're like, hey, we bought this thing with the whole 15 minute thing. I'm trying to get this new project out. Why is the systems team still telling me that it's a month before I can even have dev servers to do things on? Like what's what's wrong here? Like I, I'm not getting the business value that I believe I should be getting, right? Yeah, you're paying uh, for, right? That you're yeah. investing time and money in. And so like e either you can adapt to that or you can get, shut up, uh, you can get some adaptation <laughs> put down upon you by uh, by business decision makers and that's usually unpleasant. Sorry, my cat is freaking no. out. Yeah, my cat does the same thing. It's happened on this podcast several times. Don't feel fine. bad. Yeah, it's fine. Yeah, I, I like, I mean, the, the stories that you're telling are just that, like, they, they they resonate. I mean, like, I'm an old guy too, right? Like, that's, heck, that's, you know, there's a few of us around, but, um, <laughs> I, you know, I spent my early days at iOmega, right? And yeah. at, at, at kind of their height when they had, you know, a few thousand employees and, what you're saying is almost absolutely right. You know, they were a bit more progressive just because they were, they had, they had a startup feel to them, but I, I, I totally remember, you know, turning around and trying to get a new system in and even like AMD comes out with something that's new and you're like, Oh sweet. This is going to like increase our performance and help us do X, Y, and Z. And it's three months before we actually could see any hardware, right. Or have yeah. anything in place to actually use to and it was mostly because it had to go through. Hey, it has to go through. You know the the Unix administrators. It's got to go through the network admin. Somebody has to rack it. It has to go through receiving. Sits there for a couple of days. Right. It was this whole kind of process of deploying a server, and it it wasn't necessarily that the people weren't smart enough to do it quicker. It was just hey, guess what, right? Like most people have like a daily cadence and this is what they do. And they're only they're only deploying things once a week. And then on top of everything else that's going along, um, I mean, you, you talk about Pearl and I feel like that's where, like at National, it's, you know, like where you were before that the, that was the glue back then, right? To, Absolutely. To, to, to yeah, to Python or whatever. But back then, yeah, Pearl was the... Pearl was the king, right? You know, and... If you were doing apps, it was C, and if you were doing uh, admin stuff, it was Perl. It's like you know, like it's like uh, uh, Java and Java and Python, maybe not today, but five years ago. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, like, because I, I and I and I wonder how many of us wrote some of those pre DevOps tools because that was realistically because yeah. I did Java development initially and then moved on to like the system administration team to do, to basically build a system that did deployment to like a pre like, a, you know, continuous integration deployment so that I could actually pull the code out of, okay, CVS right back then, right? You know, this is like yeah. how far back I'm going oh, to wow. before subversion. <laughs> and actually like bundle it up, actually run Java C and build your jar and then deploy it to, you know, blue martini at the time and then we started to use like tomcat and some of the other ones as they were coming out but it was this huge huge process and like like i just wonder how much of that got tied up right had we shared some of that pearl code across the industry it probably would have helped things out right well th that's a good point right like pre 
not just pre-internet, but like, you know, you got internet and then you have the, the rise of sharing, right? Uh, the reason a lot of the newer, um, I mean, Pearl had CPAN, right? But yeah. one of the key factors of success of all these newer programming languages and or tools and ecosystems like your, your chefs and your Terraforms or whatever has largely to do with how they manage code sharing, right? Oh, yeah. like, can somebody make a module for deploying an Apache server and then nobody else has to ever do that again? Like that's, that's actually behind like people, you know, when new programming languages come out, people love to talk about frankly weird esoteric crap about them that, that that's gonna be why they're successful or not. That's not why they're successful or not. They're successful if a developer can go suddenly download 200 libraries to do the stuff they need to do. Like period, end of story. Like that's, I, I would go so far as to say that is the only significant factor in the success of a programming language nowadays um, because it's so important, right? Yeah, oh yeah. I, like, yeah, I mean, we, we, we talk about Node, right? And how popular it is. And, and part of that is NPM, right? Or probably the majority of it, right? I mean, honestly, you know, what 97% of an application is not custom code anymore. It's just all the modules that get pulled down. So absolutely. Yeah. I mean, my, my new gig, uh, Precision Autonomy is a startup and we're 100% serverless and it's all, it's all Angular and Node. And yeah, it's like, okay, we need to, we need to uh, generate PDFs. Great. Let's go look for an NPM package. It's going to do that. We need to do this other thing. Like, you know, the writing it yourself should always be your last resort. Right. Yeah. Uh, it's, it, it's the same thing in operations. Uh, we learned like, I, I still think everybody doesn't really fully embrace this for historical reasons, but you always see the little pyramid like SaaS infrastructure as a service size, you know, uh, 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 oh, platform in between and all that stuff. And really, you know, the, the thing that makes logical sense nowadays is, you know, if, if nobody has to write it, if you could just buy it as a SaaS service or something and it d does what you need it to do, that is always the most efficient. Some platforms of service play where, you know, you have to write some code, but you don't have to do the infrastructure. That is, that's your fallback. Then, you know, doing it cloud infrastructure, that's your next fallback. Doing it on-premise infrastructure, that's your next fallback. And you should only ever traverse down that pyramid if there is a super compelling reason, like you just cannot do what you need to do at that at that level of kind of doing less of that work, right? Um, and so that, that's why our new thing, we're like, okay, like now that we have lambdas and stuff like that, like do we have any challenges that actually require servers? No, therefore we shouldn't, like any time that I were to waste, you know, putting servers together, making sure that they're, you know, up to the CIS benchmarks, doing all, like, it's all waste, right? Yeah. And, and that's a big concept in Lean, right? Identifying what of your work is creating value in a product and what of it is cost of doing business, you know, waste stuff that in, in the perfect world you wouldn't have to do and then you could get the value for, uh, for uh, uh, less investment. And uh, uh, I, I, serverless is a great tool in that toolbox. Now, I can definitely look down the path and say, okay, there are, there are some things that 
we would need to do that would require us to do something other than serverless, but like, we're certainly not going to do them until we're forced down that path. Uh, uh, or yeah, time, time is money when you're a startup, right? You're burning, you're burning funding. So every 15 minutes you spend screwing around on something that isn't actually necessary for your mission uh, is uh, uh, a nail in the coffin of your organization. And yeah. it's a little bit more common now, like serverless, but I actually, I remember James Wickett coming to OWASP Nova and he gave, he was doing like a lot of us do where we like go to a local meetup, do it the talk, refine it, you know, before it goes to like a big stage. So he was doing that. And I, I remember like a good portion of his talk was just on like, what is serverless? Because it had to be, because there's, I mean, it was just, just so new, even just a few years ago that, um, you know, he just kind of had to lay out like, okay, here's what it is before getting into like, how it can work for you, against you, et cetera. Like, yeah, just yeah. explaining what it was. Yeah. Was a big deal. Things, before that, the whole pass thing, I, I frequently would, uh, I frequently would say that whenever somebody comes in and tries to sell somebody on a pass, like people would just look at them, you know, it's like, like they're a sorcerer or something like, it was, <laughs> it, you know, it, it violated kind of existing paradigms of how people thought about computing. And so uh, I was very, you know, it was hard, even though in most in most cases, people are people are essentially generating their own platform as a service internally, right? Because they're like, wait, this is inefficient. We need you know our our Java auto deploys that we wrote back in the day. Like that's a first step towards building a platform for for people to use. Uh, so it does kind of make sense to use a commodity one instead of uh, doing your own, but it's it's uh, it's a hard conceptual step for people. Uh, you know, in tech and in security and whatever, there are always those things that like, they're not a bigger technical leap, but they're a bigger conceptual leap just for whatever dint of history in human psychology, right? Yep. But, uh, but yeah, so, so, uh, uh, so from Bizarre Voice, uh, so we disintegrated the ops team, embedded them everywhere. Um, we had a very small security and compliance team. It was like two people. Uh, there was the, the lady kind of doing the compliance and the, the guy she hired to do the security. Uh, and so we became kind of the natural um, liaison for them to kind of, you know, gateway that uh, into the teams. Um, and so that was that was really good kind of working with them because we, just like everybody nowadays, that was my first experience in having to go through the whole list of uh, uh, compliances. I mean, at National Instruments, we had to do ISO and we did uh, PCI and stuff like that. But uh, uh, Bizarre Voice was the first one where it's like, here's the list of, 200 weird international compliance regimes and we have to we have to tick all of them right or oh we can't sell in france if we don't do whatever that weird one that starts with f is and it's like okay right <laughs> uh, and doing that in a in an efficient and kind of uh integrated with engineering teams manner that was that was kind of the first like we had done security with our DevOps team at uh, National Instruments. But this was the first time that I was kind of doing it on a larger scale. Like I was managing four teams and there was another dozen teams uh, in the engineering department. Like I, I didn't work myself out of a job, right? We disintegrated the ops team and they were like, here's a product team, go do them. I was like, okay. Um, so uh, 
So that was very interesting. And then I, I took a little bit of a, a side detour. I, I wanted to move into product management. Uh, my friend Pecco uh, had had done that with Riverbed and he really uh, enjoyed that. Um, and I felt like I had kind of become expert enough, especially in the DevOps kind of monitoring and stuff like that. I was like, you know, I kind of like to be able to call the call the shots on something in that domain. So I went to a startup called Copper Egg uh, here in Austin that was a SaaS uh, uh, monitoring provider. Uh, they got they got bought uh, by a company uh, called Idera. That does uh, uh, they were doing primarily SQL Server tools. They've they've bought another probably dozen companies since then. So they do a bunch of stuff. But but uh, uh, was there was there about a about a year when they got bought? It's funny when they got bought out. They got rid of all the engineers. <laughs> no, I wasn't uh, an engineer. So they didn't get rid of me, right? Uh, <laughs> Manager, you stay. You need to write things and send them off to foreign countries. And oh, yeah. All right. And, <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> well, and that was a real interesting um, experience as well because I I had kind of moved into SaaS and, like, I, I had been doing it long enough that, like, I had forgotten there are people that don't understand it, right? So, so the, these guys, they bought a SaaS company and they fired all the engineers, and I was like, um, so, hey, like, you actually have to, like, you have to have people tending to this thing. It doesn't, and, like, to their credit, they they buy a lot of companies that are underwater financially, and they're like, yes, right. everyone always tells us they need all that shit that's driving them out of business, you know, whatever, yeah. right? Um, but, unfortunately, then, Products starting to go down. My boss in PM was like, "You do not put your hands on that. It's not, it's not our problem." I'm like, "Okay, right." Uh, and so, unfortunately, that that product took a lot of beating because there were day long outages. Right, that that uh, uh, until they they were finally like, "Oh, okay, yeah, let's <laughs> bring in let's bring in a team that uh, that'll do kind of the the care and feeding." Right, but that's that was something where I realized, like, I've kind of developed a. a uh, passion for education and stuff over time because whenever we learn something, especially after a while, we just assume everybody knows that. And that's, it's almost always uh, incorrect assumption. Right. And yeah. the, a lot of your, whatever your job is, a lot of your job has to be education. It just has to be or else you won't be successful. Right, you're you're if you're a developer, you're educating a fellow dev on what you did. If you're you're in security, you're educating somebody on you know why this finding is important. Like that's that is such an important part of what's going on. And, and kind of I started to realize that there, and that led me into then kind of uh, doing a lot of those uh, LinkedIn learning DevOps courses and stuff like that. Because I'm like you know like all the DevOps Illuminati has already kind of moved on, right? Like the people that started it, right. they're like, oh, DevOps, that's not hip anymore. You know, we say hipper yeah. things here, you know, but but it's like, hey, there are, there are still huge organizations struggling with it, struggling to understand it. You can't just point them at a couple conference presentations from, you know, 10 years ago and expect them to suddenly get it, right? Like it's like, it's great. You got it. I got it. Like we we're smart, but like us being smart doesn't help anything. 
right? right. Unless you can apply that to, to organizations and help them learn. And I think that's one of the most acute challenges with, with InfoSec as well, right? Like it's over the years that grew increasingly siloed, right? For, you know, for yes. a variety yeah. of reasons, you know, it's no, no one person's fault, but I mean, that, to be honest, that's why I stopped doing a lot of stuff with, with OWASP, right? So we, you know, we were doing the OWASP thing and I kept trying to get our, our developers to mm-hmm. come attend. And I was like, Hey, so, I noticed, you know, we're having it here at the building and I noticed you haven't come the last three times. What's up? Right. You know, and uh, they'd they'd say something along the lines of, well, you know, it's fine. I go there and maybe somebody will show a cool exploit or something, but I never see anything that has anything to do with my actual job of building things. Yeah. Right. And I mean, you mentioned that early in the pod or, was it during the podcast or during the pre pre podcast? Uh, Some somewhere in there. Yeah, it's, a, it's, 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 a, it's it's a pretty common thread. I, yeah. I mean, for us when we're dealing with developers, right? Like that that was like why I was you know talking AppSec Day and how like that's so like code relevant. But I, I I'm with you on like the industry as a whole, right? You look at Black Hat. And you look at like how much of that is actually relevant to even like a system administrator or a you know developer or a business person like their day to day life, and it's just not right. Like we, we have this discussion all the time about it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, at least this last year. Uh, so I went to I went to RSA to uh, uh, talk at the DevSecOps Days thing so there, and, and you kind of semi attached to the conference and like. At the same time, I mean, yes, yeah, yeah. It's, it, it, it like happens during the first day, and then there was a DevSecOps track at, actually at RSA this year, uh, which was uh, like cool and interesting, and started bringing some of that in. But it's it's tough. I mean, it's the same problem that that I mentioned about kind of uh, conferences back in the day with operations, right? There there were no operations conferences, and then okay, there was a then there was an operations conference and. It could have just, I mean, there were operations conferences before that, like Lisa and stuff, but again, siloed, heavily siloed, right? Yeah. After a while, not, not back in the day, like when I got started, there was not a, there wasn't this kind of artificial distinction between dev and ops at that time, right? You had, you know, you had Unix systems programmers, right? Like you had people yep. who, knew how to use all the system calls when they were doing their C code, but like it wouldn't, you know, when, when things grow, there's always specialization, right? It's when that specialization leads to siloing that it can uh, become harmful if not, if not uh, channeled, right. Right. So, so that, that's kind of what happened with us. It's like, I know the devs really wanted to go to OWASP anymore. Mm-hmm. It was for, it was for product people and pen testers, right? Like those are the people that, that were there, and so even I, as a manager, I'm like, okay, I need security pro- uh, projects or products that I'm interested in some pen testing. But yeah, just it spoke to a lower and lower percentage of the job I was doing, right? Well, you mentioned training and outreach. And my question really is like, in terms of, you know, developers being, and, and you're talking about developers' jobs so, sort of, I don't know if it's, yeah, I would say a little bit changing if you're deploying, right? If you're actually deploying 
uh, operationally applications um, via config files or whatever, like you know, how, how do you, cause uh, Chris Gates and I gave uh, some series of talks on like DevOps security issues that have like come up. And what we found was it was a lot of like developers who were trying to play operation yeah. had, like the, the full networking TCPI, uh, sorry, OSI layer stacked down. Right. So, you, we ran into like Absolutely. most of the time when we ran into this stuff, it was because somebody didn't really un fully understand like the, the full, like I said, networking OSI, however you want to look at it or label it. And that's one of the toughest, toughest things, right? So that's siloed organizations are the simple, easy answer to having multiple disciplines, right? It's like, well, obviously, well, we have network engineers, we'll put them in a big network bag, we have security people put them in a security bag like it's it's kind of the thing that doesn't require any any additional thought because you have to have that specialization like sometimes uh devops gets accused of demanding everybody be a full stack engineer or whatever and i mean that it's some places do fall into that trap right but you can't hire more than a couple of those uh types of engineer right i mean i've i've only known less than 10 people that I, you know, I would consider to be a adequately skilled in every layer of the stack, full stack engineer in my career. Right. Um, instead you have to piece together kind of the, the different specialties in a way where they can, they can combine and fill in those gaps. It's like, you need somebody that understands that operational level better. You need somebody who, Oh, do you need somebody that understands the security part? but you need them to be pulling together as part of the same product team instead of being somebody that you're submitting a request to that's going to sit for two weeks because like right, wrong or indifferent, that realization I had about the, you know, 15 minutes to make a server business decision makers have come to that realization too. They're like, Hey, all this stuff, our IT department told us about, it's going to take a year to do that. Like, no, screw them, fire them and hire somebody else. Uh, like the answer can always be faster than that now, right? So like, it's not a decision you have to to be slower. Like that that's, that is something that will get the decision taken out of your hands. So the question is how do we make it fast, right? Uh, good and fast. And, and the good news is like, as we discovered in DevOps with continuous integration and stuff like that, making it faster actually made it provably better. Right. The, the, it's like, well, if you don't do a big waterfall and do extensive testing, then you'll have more bugs in production or whatever. And like that's been disproven by uh, by research over the over the course of doing this. It's like, no, doing them and being able to fix bugs more quickly and whatever actually has a net positive effect. So it's, it's possible. Right. Uh, but you have to you have to kind of embrace it and try it to uh, to get the uh, uh, to get the benefits. Um, so. So, so yeah, so after, after product management, I came, uh, 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 I went to alien vault, which was interesting because it was my first time working for an actual security company, right? And then now they're right. AT&T, uh, AT cyber security because we got bought. Right. But, um, we had a, uh, uh, incubation team here in, uh, Austin, uh, the, the the company was originally Spanish. Uh, uh, it was, a, it was a Madrid based startup that had done, uh, oh. they, they had done OSIM and then they productized it and made an appliance and stuff like that. And then the, uh, the, uh, 
guys who sold Fortify to HP were wandering around with a bunch of money in their pocket. Uh, <laughs> they were like that company, right? So they so they uh, uh, got in on Alien Vault and started a, a incubation team over here, and very quickly came to the determination: hey, it should probably be SaaS, and we're like. That like it's funny. I, I remember the CTO like he came and like to the engineering team and you know was selling this on why it's like it really should be SaaS because of these reasons and you know we were, we were just like well obviously yeah. we were wondering why y'all hadn't smartened up right like, yeah. <laughs> like, like don't have to convince us yeah it's like you don't yeah you don't have to sell us go go back to your execing and we're gonna start right <laughs> uh, and so. Uh, we uh, we got that and shipped out the USM uh, anywhere, uh, which uh, which uh, was very successful, and then that led uh, AT and T to uh, procure the company. Uh, uh, and so that was that was great because we we had a bunch of you know I, obviously we had to do a bunch of compliance and security stuff as well as well as we were making a security yeah. product. Uh, we got to dog food uh, our own product, uh, which was uh, was very helpful. Um, so, you know, that's, I still wasn't a, like my job wasn't full-time security. It was running the, the engineering operations team, but it got me a lot uh, deeper uh, uh, into the modern aspect of that world. Cause I, a lot of my, a lot of my knowledge was a little older. I wasn't up on kind of the modern uh, 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 kind of threat intelligence stuff and all that. So, so uh, it was, it was great to get, uh, get that. Like I, it's funny. I even I did a CISSP class. Um, when was it? I was probably still at National Instruments. Like I did a CISSP class, and then once it was over, I decided not to take the exam because I was like, I was kind of like bah, right? It's like, <laughs> it's like if I have to answer a question about the Orange Book or whatever, like yep. whatever, right? Like again, yeah. it's like that had nothing to do work I do. Uh, Ten base two networks, right? Like, yeah, yeah. Those, like, <laughs> was like that was on that was on my system. Yeah, yep, yeah, yeah. Um, You're kind of making me think a lot about like the the weird thing from this conversation is I'm starting to think a little bit more about like uh, how developers have more and more on their plate. Like it was okay to just write like a, a crappy. Well, I shouldn't say crappy. That's opinionated. I should say a simple Java app, uh, and then you get you just hand it to somebody else and they make it work. And then if it gets hacked, it's like, well, or if you need it secured, that's maybe somebody else's job. And now you're saying you're an engineer. And that's a distinction too, not like a developer only. It's an engineer now, which is like, <clears throat> you have the ability to deploy some stuff. You have to write the code. You have, uh, have to make sure it runs like on people's machines as well as you know, when it's deployed, you have to make sure it's secure. So you're going to take security training and you have to make sure it falls under compliance, like GDPR requirements, for instance, like <clears throat> the, the actual burden now that we're talking about it. And I really, it's weird. I have never thought about it until today. Like the, the burden is getting, I almost feels like the burden's becoming, you know, more and more for, for an engineer or developer, whatever term you want to use. So they're, they're definitely, that definitely is a factor, right? So yeah, it's like nobody's, nobody's getting off easy in all this, right? Like the, the de demands are, there are more demands and they are more strident. 
and and more people are having to be exposed to them. Yeah, you know, as as a developer, you can't you can't not care about any like you don't have to be an expert in it necessarily. The the phrase they often use in the industry is uh, T-shaped individuals, right? So there's there's a full stack engineer that's supposed to try to do everything. And then you have an I-shaped person that just knows one thing deeply. Mm-hmm. And so what we're trying to do is kind of make everybody T-shaped to where it's like, okay, you have a deep specialty, but you have to have some understanding of these other disciplines, operations, security, whatever they are, that come together to, to providing the product. Because the the full the kind of full flower of um, of uh, subdividing specialties. The problem is it creates local optimizations as opposed to systems thinking and optimizing the system. So it's for a developer, like a lot of them would prefer. It's like, hey, I just want to worry about sharing out my code. Somebody else should write my tests for me. Somebody else should make sure it's secure. Somebody else should. And from their point of view, that's more that's more efficient. From the organization's point of view, it's terrible. It's the word. It's the least efficient. Yeah, bananas. Yeah, yeah. But but you know, and so there's a tension between those two things. There have been a lot of developers that you know, as these changes have come, like they've they've resented. It's like, oh, I don't want to take responsibility for what my code does in production. I don't want. It's like it's like well, like. Neither do I, by the way. <laughs> yeah, right. It's like it's like I'm sorry. That's not really a. It's not really a choice anymore, right? Like, like uh, you know, it's like it's like I'm. I want to just be a good developer and not do those other things. It's like, well, I'm sorry. By making that choice, you're making choice to be a shitty developer. Like, yeah, you have to be a good developer. Yeah, the results I mean, that you are generating are not as useful for the organization consuming them. Like you can have some ivory tower view of what makes you good. What really makes you good is if that is useful and helps improve the organization. Right. And that's, I think that's a a keen message uh, for uh, InfoSec as well. Right. It's like, you know, you can have as pure a view as you want if it cannot be efficiently consumed by an organization to make their actual products and services more secure, you're bad at your job. Like, uh, you know, I'm sorry. Like, it's a, it's a hard truth. None, none of us like it. I didn't like it when I realized that we were doing ops wrong, right? Like, that's a bitter pill to swallow to say the way we've been doing things for a long time, it's not the best way anymore. Like, but to improve and to change, you have to be willing to embrace those bitter truths and say, okay, okay, what then how can we do it better, right? It's the only way that we as the human race improve, right? And it's, it's as simple as that. Um, but it's, it's hard. It's emotionally hard. You know, you, you have to help other people through it. Right. I mean, a, a lot of my job at, at national instruments at bizarre voice, I'm at my current gig, right. It's, it's helping people through kind of, you know, that process of understanding what it is they need to do and, and helping them be okay with it when it's not, the thing they would do by default, right? You know, I'm, I'm, we're in a startup and I'm doing, you know, your standard getting people used to agile and stuff like that. And, and there's always rough edges, right? It's like, why wasn't this perfect the first time? It's like, because, because to make it perfect the first time you would have had to spend several days writing a spec doc that you're not going to take time to do. And then somebody, but you know, instead 
we just had somebody guess at a version one and let you review it because that's more efficient. It's more efficient for the organization. You don't have to spend two days doing something and they're not waiting on you to generate it. And, and uh, it's an end-to-end -end view, right, of what uh, what actually generates quality output the fastest, right? And then you have to put, to the degree that you can put your emotions aside on that, you have to do that. And then, you know, we're all there to help each other uh, work through it, right? Uh, as a manager, uh, you know, the, the health of my employees has always been super important to me. And, and people have trouble with it, right? They need help. Uh, and and uh, that's, you know, that's just human nature. It's not weakness. Uh, and uh, uh, it's all of our jobs to help uh, help other folks through that part. Yeah. Yeah. Change is always hard, right? Like, and, and, and I mean, the larger the organization, I feel like the harder that change is too. I, you know, but I mean, stepping from You've seen that the number of those organizations that are like, oh, we're going to move from waterfall to agile and we're starting next week, right? And you're like, okay, it, it's great oh, yeah, that, you yeah, have, right. that you're using agile fall because you're having like two week sprints and you're having standups, but like your whole process is still waterfall, right? And, and that's a great place to start. But you, you, you know, like, yeah, I mean, changing hearts and minds is always the hardest thing. Like, you, it's always easier. You can go into an organization and slap some scrum on them, like, and maybe that'll help things. Maybe it won't, but uh, uh, the, you know, the hearts and minds is always the challenge. It's, it's how do I think about this in an agile way? You know, that's, I had to forward that. So back when I was at National Instruments, agile hit the dev teams and th there wasn't an organized, like, we're going to make people be agile, but like dev teams were just adopting it because it was new, it was cool and it was better, right? So suddenly team one is agile, suddenly team two is agile. And it created a giant impedance mismatch between the way we had been interacting with our, with the developer teams we were working with, right? You know, we, we had this systems development, like, and we put a lot of work in this. So we had this whole systems development framework, right? It's like, okay, you're gonna do a new thing. Let's make sure backups and security and all this and get all the questions answered and, and all that. But as they started to become agile, they're like, okay, we're starting this new thing. Hey, we need to develop, deploy to dev, you know, next week. What can you do for us? And we're like, Ooh, you know, <laughs> you know I was like, does not compute. Um, but, you know, after I sat down and engaged with it, I was like, well, you know, it's okay. Right. Like they're not going to production with it. And, you know, what we've been doing is kind of the idea of, you know, we have to build out a perfect, you know, we're building out a big, perfect, like apartment complex and then letting everybody move in because we feel like we can't, like, it's hard to change it after that point, right? You've got people moved in. It's hard to change it. But when the developers, like there was a real, I think it was Karthik actually, like, um, like they sat down and explained kind of the concept of refactoring and that it's like, hey, yes, like we're getting started like this, but we're embracing being able to refactor and change as well. So so it's okay if you build the apartment, you know, piece by piece and you have to go back and change the previous ones. Like we're, we're deliberately embracing being more adaptable. So it'll be okay. Right. Because we weren't doing it because we, we weren't doing it that previous way because we thought it was going to be more work for us. We were doing it because we were like, well, once these guys get some of their stuff deployed, 
then they're never going to let us change it, right? We won't be able to go back and make it more secure or make it more hardened or make it, you know, more resilient or like they'll stop us because, you know, developers don't want, you know, they're self-absorbed and they don't want people changing stuff under them. They don't care about that. Right. And so it, it definitely took both sides saying, Hey, we, we have something we can give here. And then I was like, okay, well we can just cobble you together a server that you can use for dev with the understanding that that's got to be refactored before we go in there. Like, okay, great. And so that, that started that kind of hand in hand uh, March. Right. And then when we found that SAS team, we used that, you know, it's like, we needed to get to market quickly, but you know, we did some basic threat modeling and stuff like that. And then, you know, and then we'd do some more and then we'd do some more and, and we'd have to go back and change things. We were, we were developing our own um, systems management tooling at the time. Like we kind of made a, a primitive version of uh, Terraform, I guess you would say. There was no Terraform at the time. So we wrote this thing in house that basically did that whole, that same thing uh, because we, we needed something that could deploy our systems in the cloud and the software and reason about them. It's like this service depends on this service. We needed something that could reason about that and that um, even with Chef and Puppet and stuff that didn't really exist at the time. So we, we kind of developed our own. So we got real comfortable with refactoring, you know, the systems level and the app level and the security model around it. We had to make it super secure. Like one of the products was a FPGA compile cloud, right? And FPGA designs, like they have some of the, you know, hairier intellectual property that people really want to protect, right? So we're like, okay, like this, this has, like, we're not going to be able to sell this product if we don't have a security first story, right? Like, like, you right. know, nobody would, nobody would submit their FPGA to compile in the cloud unless, unless, you know, they're convinced we know what we're doing and we have a good security story around it. Um, but, you know, getting there, it, you know, it's building it into it, but then it's being willing to, uh, uh, being willing to refactor, not always having everything on the front end, right? You can't, you know, you can't, get to ship if you're also putting in your static scanner and your DAS tool and your, you know, this, that, like, you can't do all of that before you, you ship nowadays. Like, no, you can't, you definitely can't. And I mean, this is a conversation that Seth and I have with our students when we give training on secure code review, we're like, before we even talk about the ins and outs of code review, let's talk a little bit about prioritization and strategies because you're, here's how probably everybody makes you feel like it should be done, but in practice, it's just not like, it's not realistic. So yeah. Let's talk about what is realistic. Well, yeah. Yeah. I, I have a presentation that I, I did it on lean monitoring back in the day. And then I adapted it to lean security later on with kind of the idea of, Hey, like identify all those areas and start off, do the most basic thing you can do in each of those areas. Right. And then from there, you're going to learn what you actually need. You know, I've, I've worked for places where at at national instruments in in the SAS team, continuous delivery. We never did that. That wasn't, that wasn't a problem that was important to that particular organization. Like we, we could have done it, but it was like, well, that's like, it's an engineering organization. They, they, 
release things kind of, you know, slowly and in line with like CD wrapped, you know, software releases like, like that wasn't, that wasn't the problem. We spent all of our time on, on systems provisioning in the cloud and like uh, monitoring and stuff like that. Each place you work is going to be a little different. It's like, is, is the best place to invest their static code scanning? Maybe it is, maybe it's not. It depends what language you're using. It depends what they're doing with it. You know, some places have have code scanning and it's just terrible and everybody keeps it turned off because it's not it's not fit for that use, right? Some places have a lot of, you know, production monitoring or none, right? So, you know, embracing that kind of learning ability of lean and say, okay, in these six areas, we're going to put in the bare minimum. And then immediately we're going to go back and we'll do the version two in the thing where we need it. And we'll have learned from having the more basic thing, right? It's like, you know, people are always like, oh, the whatever, the default AWS application firewall. It's like, well, so it's better than nothing. You can set it up in four hours, right? And then you're learning, right? So then when you go and look to procure something more fancy and they ask you, well, what sort of threats do you see? You're not just making shit up, right? Like you have actual, actual information, you know, God yeah. forbid, uh, uh, as opposed to hypothetical information, right? Like people often uh, point at, at security and frankly at ops people about the FUD factor, right? It's like, well, we need this because it'll be more resilient. And they're like, yeah. I hear you saying that, but resilience like security is something that you can buy an infinite amount of. I mean, not really, but you can spend an infinite amount of money on it. You know, they're like, I, I kind of want to know, is this really addressing a need, right? Not, not, I read something about, you know, something on the dark web. It's a theoretical threat. And it's like, okay, but like, we don't even, we don't even have a, IPS yet, right? Like, like uh, you know, you have to you have to tune that to to the what's going to eliminate the bigger chunks of threats uh, uh, that you actually face, uh, and actually getting data in from you know doing a version one, throwing it away even for for a version two, improving on it or throwing it away for a version three. That's the way that you get a solid foundation that gives you real security that's that's integrated more into the DNA of your organization, right? Uh, because then everybody's learning along with it. They get to see it when it's simple. You know, everybody has to learn. You know, uh, my last organization, they, they were trying to get some uh, Kubernetes going. And like the problem is, it's like, that's great, but we've got a big dev team here. And like, they need to be like, they're not even using Docker yet. Like, like, like there's a there's a whole learning sequence of getting used to those things that that they have to go through to not to not use it terribly. Yeah, I've seen a lot on Twitter recently about uh, specifically about Kubernetes and like there's been a whole wave of momentum towards like yeah, you probably don't need Kubernetes or you're probably not prepared for it or there's probably a better alternative in the cloud computing space that you can latch onto that won't again, if you're not prepared like it's a better alternative uh, for for what you need and what your resources are. Yeah. So I've seen a yeah, lot yeah. of that recently. Uh, Kubernetes is, I mean, it's it's great. So Docker is a is huge innovation, right? 
Kubernetes is a really good tool. Google, you know, they love it at the Google scale. That's great, right? But but yeah, it's it's one of those things where it's like, okay, stop and ask yourself, do I, you know, but but do I need it? It's basically a big DIY platform as a service, right? Yeah. And you're gonna put a lot of effort into that. Do you know if that effort is gonna pay off? You know, we we had a uh uh uh, I, I won't identify it specifically, but we had a, a pretty major system uh, at Alien Vault that was, um, it was Docker containers, you know, deployed out, you know, it's like we pulled from Git, built them, de deployed them out to Amazon ECS. And it worked great. And we occasionally were like, well, do we need console? Do we need an operational thing? We're like, no, because we can just make a change and have a new service pushed out in five minutes. Like, like it worked super smooth and, you know, it's, it's like we could Kubernetesize that. And it's like, that translates to, we could do three months of work and get nothing for it is, is what you're telling me, right? Like, like we would literally be back where we are just with a more complicated thing underneath it, right? And if you're a hobbyist, that's cool. It's like cars, right? Like some people are like, ooh, I like the, you know, my my, my boss Lee, right? He's uh, he's always doing his own Mercedes mechanic work, right? Uh, and always launches into these long stories about, well, you see the gel-filled things. And I'm just like, okay, I I have an Audi and I take it to the shop. Just start glazing like, over. You know, yeah, yeah. Like, like, <laughs> like it's cool for that to be a hobby, but like if it's not your hobby, like yeah, you, you want it to be done quickly and well, and and <laughs> like yeah. the, the coolness of the interior details is not necessarily uh, all that important to you. And and I think there was a lot of uh, enthusiasm for Kubernetes, but it did the hype cycle. I think ran a little bit too hard. Um, and it, same thing, it kind of happened uh, for OpenStack back in the day. It was like oh. OpenStack, you can have your own private cloud. And so places that kind of were already invested in that metaphor of, oh, yeah, we're running our own data centers, whatever, like they started embracing it without thinking about, well, but should you be, right? Like <laughs> maybe, you you, maybe you should use the real cloud instead. Like what? why aren't you? And a lot of times, sometimes there was a good reason. But sometimes the answer was, well, shit, we got 30 Unix admins here and they got to do something, right? <laughs> and the problem is that's not sustainable. And that's so. Tell me again about the companies getting bought because they're not performing well yeah. because of overhead. So the QA, QA faced that, right? QA was a, and some of it still is, but QA was predominantly a manual testing sort of thing. And that's gotten squeezed out. There are a lot fewer jobs for manual QA because automated testing is is kind of so much better, right? In operations, there were a lot of data center monkey jobs, right? But those got squeezed out. I mean, I remember when I was at uh, Bizarre Voice, we, we were moving to the cloud, but we still had some assets at uh, Data Foundry here in town. And so... I had, you know, I had this one uh, systems engineer who's one of the, uh, I'll name him Brian Dove, one of the smartest guys uh, uh, that I've worked with, always knew everything. Like he was, 
he was probably the best kind of systems architect, high level guy that I had. And then what, you know, once every couple months, it's like, well, I'm going to go down and spend a day at data foundry, pulling out drives and putting in new drives. And I'm just like, what are we doing? Yeah. Yeah. I'm just like, Oh my God, like the, the value you bring to, to us in a day of doing literally anything else is so much higher. Like, you know, I really want to just go down there and throw a Molotov into that, into that rack and we'll figure out something else to do. Right. Like, like it's, it's just, you know, it's those inefficiencies that are just like, we can't, we can't do that. Yo. Like, it's just, it's not okay. You know, uh, uh, kind of trying to protect, protect the old way of doing things. Isn't it it never lasts. Right. No, no, it's, it's going to catch up with you at some point. And when it does, you know, it could, it it could take the company down. Right. Or it could mean you get, you get acquired. It means that, you know, somebody else is going to cut off that lean, you know, that, that fat to make it more lean. And yeah. I mean, and that's the thing, right? A lot of folks nowadays, they find their department cut and they're being outsourced or they're being whatever. And it's like, you know, and it's like, it sucks. But like, you know, if, if you've been clinging to the old way of doing things, like it's at some point they're going to route around you. Right. Like, you know, they, it, well, you know, see is damage and you'll be routed around if if uh, uh, if that's what has to happen for the business to make money, whatever. And and so uh, you have to embrace those higher level goals of your organization. Yeah. And well, it, it, go, it all goes back to the change factor that we were talking about. Right. Like, I, you know, the jobs that we're doing nowadays didn't exist 20 years ago when we started out. Right. Or, you know, yeah. how long that was. And it, it's all a matter of the change. Like I have this discussion with, you know, I've got, you know, teenagers that are in high school now. And I'm like, look, the jobs that you're going to be doing, uh, you have to understand technology and you have to be able to talk, but like, don't get so involved in like, Hey, I want to do X, right? Like I want yeah. this platform. I want this, you know, to yeah. be able to do, you know, computers or whatever. I'm like, as long as you understand the technology, you can move from job to job because that's what's going to happen like platform to platform yeah so yeah for anyway. sure anyway like we've been going for a while so uh we'll probably wrap things <laughs> up here uh Ernest, you know it's been awesome to have you on and to have discussions on you know all the things right we'll have to we'll have to reprise it at some point um yeah i hope it was helpful like i i don't know yeah, how it definitely was. for this audience because it's you know like again, it's not full deep dive sec, but but uh, you know, so much of so much of my job has been, hey, we gotta we gotta do these security. I mean, right now I'm trying to you know make sure our system is up to the you know New York State financial cybersecurity requirements. Like that's just everybody has to do that now. Like security and compliance and all that is it is a fundamental thing that everybody knows they have to address. And if InfoSec can bring its knowledge to them in a way that that they can consume and help them address that, then everybody's super happy. They love you. Everybody's one. Right. And it's just a matter of kind of switching some of the approach. Uh, uh, I mean, when I was at, at alien vault, just to turn, like, it's funny, like we're a security company, but it doesn't mean internally we had that on lockdown and we went through some fairly significant um, iterations in our internal kind of compliance team, you know, initially we, we kind of had a, a team and setup that was oppositional in nature with the engineering team, right? And it 
and it didn't work out. Uh, and there's a, there's a, a great head of compliance uh, there now, uh, Karen Simple, who uh, like she she really you know valued. It's like okay, how do we how do we really integrate this with your product? Let's you know let's learn how you're using Jira and doing work intake. Let's figure out how you know how we can log tickets in a way that you care about, and how we can see what you're what you're doing and, and, you know, uh, a very kind of collaborative approach in it, it shifted around both the, the effectiveness and also kind of the human cost of doing that. Right. Because it always makes your organization worse when people hate each other. Right. <laughs> like, you know, whenever there's opposition, where there's all that, like it makes everything worse. It makes people want to work there less. It makes people enjoy their job less. And therefore it makes them, less you know less productive. Seth and I have experienced that firsthand yeah along with several of our guests that have been on the show yeah if you could get everybody kind of really you know enthusiastic about pulling together getting that job done you know that every once in a while you're going to hit a bad egg right like I, I you know sometimes uh, the, the this comes up in DevOps in terms of like blameless postmortems and stuff like that and like some people roll hard on no one is ever a bad person or wrong it's like okay usually not every once in a while you're going to get somebody who's a hard case who's just like i hate security and i hate you because whatever a pen tester you know uh pen tester looked at me funny when i was young or whatever you know whatever right everybody's got something right but but the vast majority of uh other technical professionals like they get it. They watch the news. They, they know how, you know, how bad it is out there security wise. They want to make it all more secure. Right. Uh, and so I, I'm lucky in that because I've got, I've had feet in all those different areas. I, I can kind of help facilitate that a little bit. Um, yeah. The more that whoever, whoever you are, whatever role you're, you're filling, you can help facilitate that collaboration. Like that's the most important thing that that you can do right like if if somebody is only half as good a pen tester but they are twice as good at working with the engineers that's that's the person i'm gonna hire like absolutely yeah. like not the, it, i won't even think about it right? yeah well it's, it's it i mean yeah security's become much more of a relationship uh, you know if you want to get security built into an organization or a product it's more about relationships anymore than it is about the technology underneath the hood because you know well i mean it go back goes back to what you're saying like you know lean security is better than no security right like you got to start somewhere and the guy that can talk to the developers can talk to the engineers or talk to the organization to make the lean portion happen even if you're not doing it all perfectly means that you're in a better situation and security is actually going as opposed to somebody who wants it perfect is going to push hard really hard and tell everyone no and everyone hates and you know yeah yeah you're absolutely right so and we've seen that like i've seen that over the course of you know my career as well so cool anyway yeah like um where can people find you next right like i know we didn't talk about dev DevOps devops days, days. yes yeah. and uh, and yeah. DevSecOps days so um so uh, I've always uh, kind of in line with my uh, uh, love for education. So you can find me and kind of James and the and Karthik and the other guys at uh, theagileadmin.com. Uh, that's that's our blog. We've been doing that for for a while. Um, and 
I run Cloud Austin, uh, a local user group here. Um, every May, we do DevOps Days Austin. It's going to be in its ninth year or whatever. Um, in fact, next week, y'all are going to be out of town next week. I'm going to be in Belgium next week because it's the it's the tenth, oh, nice. it's the tenth anniversary of of DevOps of of DevOps Days. The the first uh, Patrick Dubois coined the term and put on uh, DevOps Days Ghent. Uh, yep. 10 years ago. So uh, all of us are, all the organizers from the different ones are flying to Ghent uh, for the, for the 10th anniversary. Um, uh, so I'll be there, but uh, we decided. I was just uh, there. Oh, <laughs> it's nice. so weird. I was just in, I was just a few weeks ago. It's crazy. It was, oh. I mean, Seth, Seth and I both traveled. Yeah. But anyways, yeah. Outstanding. So James Carthick and I decided uh, that uh, the time was right. And so we're running a DevSecOps days, uh, Austin. Uh, it's actually coming up December 16th. Uh, uh, it's going to be probably about, looking at about 300 people uh, here in Austin at the Norris Conference Center. Uh, we're looking for attendees, speakers, uh, sponsors. Uh, it's going to be, you know, it's going to be back down to the, like original DevOps days was, you know, more no frills. There's going to be one track and uh, stuff like that. But so many people in, in Austin, in the Austin area, uh, are are really excited about um, about bringing security together with uh, development and, and operations, right? I've I've talked to you know hardcore security people that are really intrigued. I've talked to people you know in the in the uh, DevOps community and stuff like that that are that are super intrigued. So we feel like it's really a great time to bring everybody together. Of course, uh, uh, there's always a strong DevSecOps uh, uh, focus at, at LastCon, which is the local uh, OWASP. Yeah that's in November okay. that's that's great as well uh, uh, but uh, then after that we thought we'd do uh, uh, kind of specifically uh, DevSecOps days thing so uh, uh, Shannon Leitz is going to be speaking uh, uh, some others that are big names but haven't been greenlit yet so I won't say their names but but uh, <laughs> uh, we're looking to have some, uh, have some real good uh, real good folks there and and bring everybody together to really collaborate. That's the, <laughs> there's the cat. <laughs> uh, that's, that's the thing that we really liked about DevOps days is just, it's not a, like a conference conference where you come and get vendor swag and, and talk to, right. It's, it's a place where you can really come and collaborate with other practitioners, like talk through stuff, right. Uh, uh, the Austin tech community has been grabbing my first experience with restarting the OWASP chapter. Uh, it gave me a love for the, the technical community here. And it's so, uh, uh, so much more collaborative than a lot of other places, you know, and I've gone to some of those meetups when I've been out for stuff in Silicon Valley. And I don't know, everybody's like, I'm not going to say anything I'm doing because you're going to steal my cool startup idea of, Uber for insert noun here or whatever, right? And it's just like, whatever, dude. Uh, 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 but uh, here, uh, people really love like talking to each other and figuring out these hard problems. So we're we're really looking forward to that. Would love for everybody to uh, uh, to come out. So uh, yeah, DevSecOps days, December sixteenth. That's the big uh, thing on our minds right now. Cool, cool. Yeah, well, uh, people will catch it, and we'll put. I mean, we'll make sure it's linked. Uh, Ken already linked it everywhere, so we'll. We'll do that, um, but yeah, we appreciate your time. Appreciate that you know the rundown. We'll have to have you back on. We can talk more maybe after uh, DevSecOps days, and we can, yeah. we can talk about yeah. what, what went on there. Uh, I love the podcast. I, I I still try to keep up, you know, with what's going on in the uh, 
uh, security world and it's uh, stuff like this that makes it easy to kind of put my put my finger on the pulse. So uh, when I'm driving around, I'm always listening to podcasts. I appreciate awesome. that. Thank you for again for joining us and for for coming on. Seth, do we have anything to mention before we? I mean, I mean, we already said we we're going to be in Melbourne the rest of the year, you know, because of my yeah. my lazy butt. I don't want to travel anymore for the rest of the year, so that's about it. But <laughs> I don't think there's anything else. I do know we're going to order some more swag. So you know, obviously, Ernest, we 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 will owe you a a t a shirt if we do t shirts uh, this time. And um, yeah, we're we're going to order some more stuff to give away for free to folks. So. I don't think there's anything else. Do you, can you, is there, do you have anything? Nope. Nope. I think we're good. So um, yeah, we'll get back to it, but thanks everyone for joining, um, interacting and find us online, find Ernest online. Um, we've linked to all of his social media stuffs um, <laughs> and yeah, we'll see everybody next week or we'll be on set next week. Some point, some point it'll be in the future for us, but it'll be the, the same time for you. So there we go. Oh, actually, there's one thing I'll mention. We have several guests coming that uh, I've lined that we we worked to finally. Basically, what I'm saying is we lined them up, and I finally sent out the invites and 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 got things going. So we've got a whole lineup of new uh, new guests. It's going to be next two months. They're going to be really fun. So I should have mentioned that. Cool. All Great. Right. Yep. All right. Thanks, everybody. Have a good day. Okay. Bye. Thanks, Ernest.